Isn't that a great promise from the Lord? We are never alone. He will never leave us. What a great promise. Man, y'all got to stop doing special music or something. It's, it's, I, can't, I can't do this every, every week. That is a great promise. Thank you for that. Let's pray. God, we're not alone. You will never leave us or forsake us, your word says. Through all the trials that we go through, you are the steadfast anchor that we hold to. You, you are not even moved in our trials. So I pray that for all of us this morning. God, I pray as we open your word, God, that it would continue to transform us this morning the way this worship has already in my own heart, and I pray that be true in the lives of those who have come today. I pray this morning that your word, the seed of your word, would find uh, fertile hearts to be planted in, and that it would grow, and that we would continue to become more and more like your son Jesus as you call us to. I pray for that for all of us in this place this morning. God, I pray that as we open your word to revelation that you spoke thousands of years ago to these churches. You gave them a call. You're doing the same for us here at Palace Chapel. I pray that we hear that. You, just like Brother Jack prayed, I pray that those who have ears, we would hear this morning. And the only way that we have ears, God, is by you opening them. So open the eyes of our hearts and our ears to what you would have for us. We pray this in Christ's mighty name. Amen. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. We'll read all of that, and then we'll kind of teach through the book uh, and through the letter of Pergamum. I have a cold, so I, I just pray my voice doesn't go out halfway through. I pray that you would pray that for me as well. Let's read this letter that Jesus wrote to the church of Pergamum. He says in verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where so Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you do not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So you also have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, verse 16. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them the sword of my mouth. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I give some of the hidden man, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on, on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. May you be blessed by the hearing of God's word this morning. As we've been doing throughout this series, my prayer and my hope is that as you sit here and you listen, what would the letter, if God were to pen us a letter, uh, first uh, for me personally, what would that letter look like? And then secondly, what would the letter look like if God were to write a letter to us here at Powell's Chapel? What would he say to us? What would he have to encourage us with and what would he have to rebuke us with and I think as we get into these next three letters the, these if you remember 
uh, from week one, we talked about the way the writer, John, through Jesus, is pinning. Jesus is writing these letters as if you're looking at a picture. And so he frames it, the first and the last church are the churches that have lost their love, their first love for God. And then he goes into the second church and the second to last church, and it's the mat of the picture frame. And there's no condemnation, there's no rebuke for these two churches. It's just Jesus is giving them affirmation of what they're doing well. And as we've been talking about, the picture frame and the mat are all to bring our focus and draw our focus to the picture. That's what the picture frame is for. That's what the mat or the, the, the picture is for. When you mat a picture, it's to bring out the vibrant colors that we may miss in a picture. So now in these next three letters to these three churches it's a progression of going from bad to worse so in these this letter to Pergamum he writes that you're, you're beginning to flirt with evil you're beginning to flirt with sin so he tells them this is what I have against you we'll look at that this morning next week we're going to look at where he they begin to say okay you're you're gone past the idea of flirting with sin now you're in full-blown idolatry with sin you are now worshiping the thing that you're putting before me. And then the next church, the church uh, in a few weeks is the church of Sardis where he says, hey, you, you not only flirted with sin, you've not only gone into immorality, but you are now dead because of your sin. And so the last church you know, of the three of the middle, uh, is, that's where Christ says, I don't want churches to get this way. And then we'll see the next several weeks that he then goes and encourages the church, and then in the last church, he goes back to saying that they've fallen away from their first love. And so this morning, we're going to do a series within the series. And so these next three are really the condemnation letters to the churches of what they've really fallen away from and how dangerous it is for us as a church and how we can so easily slip into that. And we're going to see this morning how this church so easily began to slip into flirting with sin. You know, we tell uh, Tennyson all the time uh, about sin, and we tell the guys that I work with, you know, so often with sin, it's like we're petting a dragon. And so we tell the guys, don't pet the dragon. The dragon will burn you. And so that's what this church begins to do. It begins to flirt with the dragon, sin. And Jesus comes to them and says to them, hey, be careful. Be careful, because you're one step away from idolatry, and one step away from then idolatry comes death. And so Jesus is warning this church early on, before they fall too far in, that it would say to them and to us, you are dead. And so the, the, the outline will be the same for all of the seven churches. The outline, we're going to look this morning at the, the city of Pergamon, we're going to look at the church in Pergamon, and then we're going to look at when King Jesus writes them a letter, King Jesus all throughout these seven churches, these seven letters, he talks about his authority. The, the authority of it is who's writing the letter. We'll look at that, and then we'll look at the address in the middle. What is he addressing the people with, the church with? And then we'll end with his affirmation. Uh, I love that each letter lends with an affirmation. That he says throughout the seven letters of seven churches that it doesn't have to be this way. There's hope for you. There's change for you. That's true for us this morning. We have a risen Savior, amen? That's our hope this morning. So wherever you are in, in this journey, as you've been with us through these churches, my prayer is at the end of each sermon, you'd leave here with hope. 
Because if you would leave here with no hope, then you don't believe in the resurrected Christ this morning. And we do have a resurrected Christ this morning. There's an empty tomb that I shared last week. And so this morning, we'll look at the church of Pergamum. You see, there's not much said about the church in Pergamum. We, we don't really know how it got started. The, the scholars say that Paul most likely planted it right after he planted the church in Ephesus. Ephesus is not too far from Pergamum. And we talked about in week one that the, the church of Ephesus was the sending churches for all the other six, the other six uh, churches. And so most likely, this is just a daughter church of the, the, the church in Ephesus. We're not sure about that. And that's really all God's word tells us about the church of Pergamum. The city of Pergamum, however, we have way more information about. Unlike the first two cities, they're not a seaport. The, the city of Pergamum is on one of the tallest mountain ranges in Asia at the, at the time. And so they would see the city of Pergamum all over Asia. That's how it was set up. It was called the, the citadel of the region. This, the citadel means it was the fortress. It would be very hard for enemies to come and attack it because they'd have to come up this huge hill, this huge mountain to bring war against it. And the people and the, the army of Pergamum would have seen the armies coming to wage war against them, and they were always ahead of the game, if you will. The, the city is a small city. They, the scholars say anywhere between 60 and 120,000 people. That range to me, I'm like, man, we couldn't have, that's a wide gap. So there's anywhere between 60 and 120,000. 20,000 people in the city. The city was known for three things. The first thing that the city was most known for was its pagan culture. We'll see that in, in this, where in verse 13, where Jesus says to them, I know where you dwell, you d dwell with Satan. And so the city was known for its pagan worship, its idolatry. The other thing that the city was known for was it had the second largest library in all of Asia, only to that of Alexandria. So it was a very smart city. It had, it had high value on education. The last thing that it's known for, it, it's this city that invented parchment, which is just old paper that comes from animal skin. So you see with this huge education, uh, this high value on education, and yet there's another thing that the city is known for, and it's very important. We'll get to it. It's the only city outside of Rome that allowed capital punishment. It allowed the government to bring capital punishment to people that died. We'll see how important that is because that's how Jesus addresses this church when he talks about his authority. The last thing that the city was known for, it, it was the capital city of all of Asia. Though it was a small city, it had a lot of power, and because of the power, it became the capital of all of Asia Minor, Turkey today. And it was the most beautiful city of all of Asia. So here we have this small city on top of a hill in the midst of a pagan culture, and yet somehow, someway, there's this small church that is birthed in that pagan city. And yet Jesus writes this small church and says to them these words. He says to them, this is how Jesus starts. Remember, that. keep in mind that they're the only city that's allowed capital punishment, and this is what he says when he starts his letter to them. He says the, to the angel, that's the messenger, the pastor of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who holds the sharp two-edged sword. And so Jesus, all of a sudden, when he writes, is going to go back to showing, hey, though you have the authority in your city to bring capital punishment, that's what the sword did. The sword 
was an instrument to bring punishment. And so Jesus shows already the first time in the letters he is the ruler of all things, that he's the one that really holds the sword of judgment. The sword was used for two things. The sword was used to bring death, and the sword was to bring life. And so Jesus is saying when he says, to the one who writes, write this, write, I am the one that has life and death. He's saying, I rule and I command and I'm in control of all things. Right? So the sword was there for protection. Jesus is saying to the people, I'm here as your protector. I hold the sword of protection for you, but I also hold the sword of judgment. That's another use of the sword. So in, in Rome, the sword was used for protection and it was used for death. So Jesus is saying to the church, hey, I am in control of all things. I'm ruler of all things. I love that Jesus, when he writes the letter, he knows them so intimately that he knows what they're right. He could have said anything about himself. You see, he goes back to Revelation. If you turn a page, just go to Revelation 1. So this is at the very beginning, and John is sitting there listening, and Jesus says this about himself in verse 12 through 16. He says, then I turned, John turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and I turned and saw seven golden lampstands. Remember from week one, that's the seven churches. And in the midst of the lampstands was the Son of Man, like the Son of Man, clothed in a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were, were bronze in the fire. His voice was like that over the roaring of many, many waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. Remember, the seven stars were the, were the seven pastors. And this is what he says. Jesus says about himself, who John sees. He sees Jesus in heaven. He says, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. That's what John is saying when Jesus writes. I am who you saw just moments ago. I have the sword in my mouth. I wield the sword of judgment. That is who I am. And if you turn over to Hebrews, if you would like, in Hebrews chapter 4, what is the sword for? What did Christ use the sword for? This is the use of the sword. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. And so Jesus is pointing to himself. I am the Christ, the risen Lord. I have all power. I have all control. I have the sword. And now here in Hebrews, it talks to us about what's the nature of the sword? What's the purpose of the sword? So we'll see that in Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 12, it says, for the word of the Lord. That's the sword of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Remember in John chapter 1, it talks about the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so Jesus establishing himself as the, the, the ruler and the word of God. And this is the purpose of the word of God. For the word of God is a living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight. What sight? The word's sight. But all who are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who is given an account. And so 
the, the purpose of the word of God is to divide the, the soul, to divide the marrow, to begin to cut away at the things that so entangle us. It's as if you are going into surgery for cancer and the, the surgeon goes in with a very sharp, sharp sword to cut out all the things that are cancerous. It goes in, the surgeon goes in after the things that are unhealthy for the body. And that's what the sword of the Lord is. It goes into our soul to carve out the things that would hinder us. And we're going to see in this passage the things that are hindering this small church. Flip back to Revelation chapter 2. And Jesus says this. So here's who he's given his authorship, his authority. I am the word of God. I am in control of all things and I'm here to penetrate your heart with the word of God he says in 13 I know where you dwell again all the letters start with this after Jesus gives his authority his authorship of who it is that he's writing he says these words I know I know I love those words because those words those two little words I know shows us that that Jesus is intimately involved with these churches. And he is so intimately involved with them, he says this, I know where you dwell. See, Jesus doesn't just say, I, I know about you. He says, I know you and I know where you live. He has their address. He can show up at any time, at any hour of the night, because he knows them personally. And so he's talking to them and says, I just want you to know I am in, still in an intimate relationship with you. And then he says this, I know where you dwell. He says, where, the, where Satan's throne is. He's saying to the church, I know what you're going through. I know this is not easy. I know living out your faith for me in this city is not easy. I know where you live. I know how difficult it is for you. Many scholars say many different things about what it means that Satan's throne is there. What most believe is that there's this huge temple that looks like it's this huge temple that's been shaped into a throne. And so many people believe that's the reason it got its name, uh, Satan's throne. And so Jesus is saying to this church, I know how difficult it is for you. And he gives them some hope. He gives them some promise. Here in verse 13, he says, yet you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. And so Jesus is saying, hey, I've got some encouragement for you. I know everything about you. I know how difficult it is for you to live there. And in your difficulties, you still hold fast to who I am and what I am and who I say I am. If you flip over to Psalms 115, I think this is so true for us. I think this is, these are the words of the, the men and women in the church. Because if there's anyone that could have an excuse not to serve the Lord, if there's anyone who can have an excuse to sit back and not pursue the Lord with everything, it would be the church of Pergamum. Like, for them to kind of sit in safety. See, Jesus had just said, I, I know that there's a fellow believer with you that proclaimed my name and held fast to my name and because of that he was killed and y'all witnessed that he said even in that even in that witnesses of that martyr for me you still held fast to my name you still proclaimed my name 
I think this was on their lips. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and for your faithfulness, you see, that small church in that wicked city was able to say, it's not about us. Not to us, not to us, not to us, O Lord, but unto you, you receive all the glory. You see, Christ is still very much worried about his reputation. And it's our great privilege to get to display his reputation to a lost and dying world. And that's what this small church in Pergamon was doing. Even through all the persecution, they were still able to wake up in the morning and put their feet on the ground and go outside and proclaim the glories of God to a wicked nation. And they were seeing the consequences of that proclamation. You see, you and I go out this door, we proclaim the name of Jesus, we're not going to be killed for it, but the people of Pergamon were killed for what they held fast to be true for them. That there was no other God, that they were making a stand, that you see all these gods in this wicked city, but there is a true God that loves you and has died for you. That was their message, and they were killed for it. And so Jesus is giving them this great encouragement, and he says to them, I know where you dwell, I know the persecution you go to, And yet you haven't let go of me. You've held fast to me. You hold on to me. Because you realize it's not about you, it's about me. I I wish the letter would just stop there. I wish Jesus had just said, and to go into verse 17 there, but he doesn't. He goes on to say this in verse 14. I think for me, these are the scary words in this letter. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. There's two things that we see in this passage that Christ has against the church. Two things. The second for me is scarier than the first. The first one is this, that the the people of Pergamum began to believe in false teaching. That's the first thing that God has against his church. The false teachings of Balaam and the false teaching of the Nicolaitans. The the teaching is the same. If you want to read the false teachings, just go to Numbers chapter 22 through 25. It talks about the, the teachings. What happened in that day was that Israel was becoming mightier and mightier and mightier and the the king Balak was getting very scared of Israel and so he hired this prophet of God to come in and talk to the people so that their power wouldn't become so powerful and they began to resist and resist and resist and resist and then all of a sudden Balaam turns the page and makes it about sexual immorality and idolatry So for both of them, the Nicolaitans were the same way. It was just the New Testament version of Balaam. The Nicolaitans believed that, hey, you have a desire in your heart, and so it's your desire to go capture your desire. Don't wait for God to give you the desires of your heart. And so that's what the two prophets were teaching, and one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. And God is saying to the people, you have begun to believe that. What have they begun to believe? They began to believe that I can satisfy my own desires. That's what sin is. 
Sin is saying, I don't believe that God will come through for me, and so therefore I'll put the things in place that satisfy my heart, that satisfy my soul. And that's what idolatry then becomes. Because when we begin to get into sin, we begin to get into that pattern of these things of the world do satisfy the heart. You know, one of my good friends, he, uh, about two years ago, got into recovery for overeating. I'm like, man, just don't eat the Twinkie. And he began to walk me through that process of what it's like for him to have food. And for him, it's, it's this emotional response that he really believes that that Twinkie is going to satisfy his heart. And the crazy thing is, in a split moment, it does satisfy. You see, sin always promises us things, right? Because if sin didn't promise us anything, we'd be able to look at sin and say, sin is sin, I'm going to walk away from it. It's got no promise, it's got no steadfastness, it's got nothing for me. But sin always promises us something, and our heart begins to believe the promise. But the thing that sin doesn't tell us, it never delivers. Sin always promises that it's going to come through for us. And and it it does in a moment, but the moment is so fleeting, and then there's no promise left behind it. There's no delivery of the true satisfaction. That's how people become alcoholics. That's how people become drug addicts. That's how people, you name in the addiction, whatever it is, you, you, people become shopaholics. Because you walk into the store and you think, man, I've had a bad day. If I just go buy blank, it's going to satisfy the heart. You buy it, and for that split moment, it satisfies the heart until it breaks. And it's go back over the process again. And that's what is beginning to happen in this church. They begin to believe the lie that sin has something for them. And so for them, it was sexual immorality. You see... For me, sexual immorality is simply this. Because sexual immorality comes out of one place and it comes out of a very healthy place. Sexual immorality is the desire for the intimacy that God has placed in us. God has made us to be intimate beings, intimate creatures. God has made us so that we would never be alone. And so that we would crave relationship, that we would crave companionship. And what does sex do if it's outside the context of God? It fulfills that intimacy for a split moment. And so for the people in this small church, they began to have the hunger for deeper intimacy with God and other people. And they were unwilling to do the work to get to the intimacy. See, true intimacy with another human being takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of dating. It takes a lot of getting to know somebody. Sexual immorality doesn't do any of that. It's crazy the way our world has made sex something that it was never meant to be. Just recreation. I was talking to someone yesterday about this idea and just talking to them about the message. And there's, there's now apps on your phone that you can just go click one button and find a partner anywhere in the United States because it's become a sport, it's become recreation but it's really coming out of the place of every person wants to be in an intimate relationship and the moment that we get fulfilled in whatever it is that is taking 
its way out of our intimacy with God becomes an idol. And so for them, sexual immorality began to become idolatrous because they were placing sex above God. And so God is saying, you hold fast to these two teachings. And we're going to get to the promise. The promise is amazing in verse 17. Because the promise is going to answer the two questions. You see, with intimacy, the question is, do I matter and do, do I belong? That's what is happening for us when we look at intimacy. We're asking the question, God, do I really matter and do I really belong? And then we'll take X, Y, and Z and place that in our heart. And God's like, no, no. And so sin always promises and never delivers. And then it becomes idolatry because then we go after it over and over and over and over and over again, hoping to get a different result. That's called insanity. Like my friend knew, if I eat 10 Twinkies, that's a bad idea. But he could not eat 10 Twinkies. Because he had tasted enough of a desire that it was fulfilling his heart that he had to keep going back to it. So it became 10 Twinkies to 20 Twinkies, you name it. Because there's never enough. There's never enough sin to satisfy the heart for intimacy. And that's what this small church had begun to do. The scarier of the two. So that's the first thing that God has against them. God has against them that they are beginning to believe in this false teaching that other things other than God can satisfy the heart. The second one is scarier to me. We see it two different times in the passage. The first one, if you have a, a pen, highlight it. It says, but I have a few things against you. The false teaching, and he says this, I have this against you. You have some of you there who hold. Highlight that, underline that. Again in verse 16, he says this, and you have some who hold to the teaching. So that phrase, you have some who hold. The second thing that God has against this church is their passivity. And what, what, that, what, what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, remember, he just commended them for holding fast to the words and truth of God. And now he's saying to them, but in that I have this against you, you've begun to allow people to come into the church that you know are in sin or not calling them out. And that is what God has a, a huge problem with for us as the, the American church, I believe. I, even this week, I might get in trouble for this. That's all right, though. I, I was talking to a friend of mine who lives in South Carolina. And if you saw this week in South Carolina, they took the, the flag down, the Confederate flag down. And he sent me this long email about that. And so I, and I just wrote back, that's sad to me. And he's like, what? How, how's that sad? I said, because within three miles of that courthouse, you have more people sitting there watching a flag come down than you do about what we're doing in America with abortion. And we have more people sitting and looking at a flag coming down than we did at the Supreme Court a few weeks ago to allow gay marriage into the country. Great, the flag's down. But we've let all this other stuff permeate the church. Because we just sit by idly and passively watching sin come into the church house. We know what sin is. 
If you're a believer here, you know what sin is, and yet we would rather not take a stand for Christ because we don't want the persecution. And Jesus is saying, you've let that false teaching come into the church house, and now you sit idly by watching it happen. He's saying you're passive. We must be able to give the answer to the people that are coming into the church that are in immorality and in idolatry. We have the answer for that. That is Jesus Christ. And yet we sit by passively because we don't want to offend. The gospel is offensive. The gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive. The other part that Jesus is talking about in their passivity, the, the fear is that they no longer know this because they're beginning to believe in the false teaching, which means they don't know what's false teaching anymore. And so for me, as I was preparing this week, asking myself this question, how well do I know the word of God? How well do I know God's word? Now, I can tell you stats about Boston baseball. I can tell you stats about Texas football. But do I know more about that than I do about the word of God? For you, what is it in our lives that takes more value and precedence than this because whatever that is we will not be able to know what false teaching is and we will not be able to stand against the immorality and the idolatry that comes into the church house and so that's what god has against them their idolatry their immorality and their passivity and yet he doesn't leave us there thank god he says to them this this is part of the address. He says, therefore, repent. Repent. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword in my mouth. He's saying to them, there is judgment coming if you do not repent. Those are scary words to tell people. Those are scary, frightening words to have to tell people that don't know Christ. If you don't repent, there is judgment coming to you. And in the judgment is really love. God's judgment is out of love. Not out of fierce anger, rage. It's out of he loves you so much that there must be consequences for our sin. And yet he tells us the way out of the consequences of sin is through repentance. And my hope for us here at Powell's Chapel would be this we would be known as a church of repentance. That we would be a people that would repent before a holy God because there's always going to be things in our life that want to draw us away from the Lord. And we're sinful people and we will fall into those things. And we must be a people that repent before God. Because if not, the promise is judgment is coming. The sword of judgment is coming. Jesus says this as he finishes this in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so, again, he's writing to all the churches, not just Pergamum, but he's writing to all the churches all over. That includes us today. To the one who conquers, that simply means to the one who overcomes, who perseveres to the end. What will he do? He will give them two things. He will give them some manna, and he will give them a white stone. Those two things go right back to 
what he is saying that he has against them. The hidden manna is simply that God is the word of life, that God satisfies all things. You remember back in Exodus, God gave the people manna because they were grumbling and complaining that they didn't have enough food, and so God began to rain down manna from heaven for them to satisfy their needs. And he's saying the hidden manna is this, I am the hidden manna. Remember what he says in the Gospels, I'm the bread of life. And so he's answering their question, do you want to be satisfied? Because I'm the only thing that can satisfy, and this is, I'm giving myself to you. I am the manna, I'm the thing that will fulfill your heart. Do we believe that in this place this morning? That Christ is our manna. That Christ satisfies us. Because if not, if we don't believe that, we'll continue to believe that, yes, sin is the answer. Sin is the answer to my problem. And so the first thing that Christ addresses here, he's saying here, I'll give you everything for you to satisfy you completely. We have everything we need in Christ Jesus. You see, if you turn over with me to James chapter 4. This is what James, the writer, says about this idea. We'll start in verse 3. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on your own passions, your own idols, your own desires. He says, you adulterous people, you idolaters, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He's saying in that passage, do you not know that when you begin to love the things of the world, you become enemies of God? He's saying you can't have both. You cannot be friends with God and friends with the world. We are either enemies with God or enemies with the world. We cannot have both. He says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or you just, you suppose not the purpose of the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us but he gives more grace therefore God says God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble what does he say to do this is our claim this morning this is our promise this morning this is our only hope this morning seven submit yourselves therefore to God resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughing be turned into mourning and joy into gloom. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the mighty hand of the Lord, and he will exalt you. You see, what James is saying and what Jesus is saying is that he is the manna. And we cannot be friends with the world and be friends with God. We'll have to choose one or the other. And he's saying the only way to choose to be with God is that we would humble ourselves and submit ourselves to the Lord. The only way for us to submit ourselves to the Lord is to know God's word and to be in an intimate relationship with God because he desires to be in an intimate relationship with us. And that's the next thing that he says there. He said, I provide everything. You will never have a need. Then he says, 
that he'll give them the next thing. The white stone, a name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. That, that white stone is a symbol of the intimate relationship that God has with each one of us. That God isn't just offering us a stone here at Powell's Chapel with everyone's name on it. He's offering you a stone with your own name on it. He's giving you a gift this morning, an intimate gift this morning. So he's going back to what he has against them, that you've left your first love, that you've left knowing what's true, and you've become idol worshipers, and you seek intimacy with God, and you seek it uh, with all of your heart, but you've allowed sin to come in, and you've begun to believe sin is the answer. And now he's saying, I will give you everything you need. And when I give you everything you need, I'll be in intimate relationship with you. That's what the cross of Jesus Christ means to us this morning. It answers those two questions. Does the cross mean to you this morning that God knows all of your needs and through Christ Jesus has provided all of your needs? And the second, do you believe that he wants an intimate relationship with you? With you. Because if that becomes true for us as an individual, that will become true for us corporately as a church. That we would be known as a church in this community. Man, they have an intimate walk with God. And we see that God has blessed them. And we see that God has provided all that they have for them. That's what will become attractive to people. Because it will go all the way back to Psalms 115. Not to us, O oh God. Not to us. But to you be all the glory. That's my prayer for us here at Powell Chapel. My hope is that God would not write us this letter and say to them that we've done these two things, that we believe in false teaching and that we've become passive. I pray that we're never a passive church. I pray that we never become a passive church. That yes, we will love everyone that walks through the doors. And after we've gained relationship and a trust with that person, that we would begin to call them out of their sin. Because that's what Christ Jesus did for us on the cross. The cross shows us how he calls us out on our sin. And when we love people the same way God loved us, God called us out on our sin. Let us never be passive. Christ Jesus himself was not passive. Where are we as a church this morning? Do we know God's word? Do we love God's word? And we actively pursuing him. As we're actively pursuing him, we're pursuing lost people to call them out, to bring them from death to life the way Christ Jesus did for us. God offers us manna this morning. God offers us a stone this morning. Will you receive it? Let us pray. God's sin always promises and never delivers. I pray, God, for us here at Palace Chapel that we would not believe in false teachings, that we would know your word so intimately, God, that we would know what false teaching is if it ever were to come in. And second, God, I pray that we'd never become passive, that we would call sin what sin is. That sin is the thing that keeps us from relationship with you and other people. We'd never be passive and let that in to the church the way this young church in Pergamon. God, I pray that we believe you this morning when you say, I am the bread of life. And I offer intimate, intimacy with you and for you. 
And God, I pray just like we heard right before your word, God, you never leave us, you never forsake us. I pray that would be true, because if we believe that to be true, we won't continue to go after the things of the world to satisfy us. There's not enough things in this world to satisfy. But Lord Jesus, you satisfy the heart. I pray we grasp you this morning. Let us know you personally and intimately this morning. Thank you for your word to your church. May it bring conviction to our hearts. We pray this in Christ's mighty name. Amen.